This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 165, and we're going to be interviewing Becky. How are you doing, Becky? Hello. Thanks for having me on. No, I'm glad to have you. You excited to do this? I am. I am. It's been a while. I'm really looking forward to diving into the good stuff. Yeah. All right. Have you ever told your story before, like at a meeting or anything like that? A few times. Yeah. Not at a meeting, actually. Um, but a lot in my work and I've done a few other podcasts, so, but it's been a while and there's lots of new stuff that's come through. So it's going to be a good day to share. Okay. Awesome. Glad to hear. I'm excited for this. So the same question I ask everybody when I start off, what was your childhood like growing up? Okay. Big question. <laughs> yep. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, cool. So I was born into a family of alcoholics. So both my mom and my dad um, had addiction issues and um, yeah, pretty much from the word go, it was quite a stressful, chaotic environment to be in. And even when I wasn't in my parents' care, I would often be given to, you know, like my auntie or whatever. And they also had like drug or alcohol problems as well. So right from the word go, I was always around, you know, drug alcohol issues, emotional abuse, self-sabotage, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, from early, early childhood, I, now looking back, kind of took the role as caretaker. You know, I would often, when I was a child here, um, my dad was usually away, but like my my mum would often have people over, have big parties, get really, really drunk, And there would be stuff that would happen. There would be things that went down. And I was often the one to kind of rush downstairs and either be trying to talk people out of situations or trying to clean clean things up, clear things up, all that kind of stuff. What kind of situations would you have to take care of? It was wild. There could be fights, um, you know, just like accidents happen like there were many times where like my mom would fall down the stairs or you know there would be something burning where it had been left or someone had fallen unconscious or there was big disagreements happening and things being done to the house that shouldn't be but also um me and my sister would get like pulled in or involved into things as well um so there was always something new always something different it was usually on the weekends but then obviously during the week um the environment was just kind of it was very strange because they were both very much kind of in denial of what was happening it was like and I think most people in the UK um, a lot of families I know like through friends and um, people that I've connected with have had similar issues with their family so I don't want to like sound like I'm pointing the blame Um, but yeah it was just kind of a situation where during the week it wasn't spoken about and if it was brought up or um, mentioned it was kind of like you know you're causing problems you're imagining things or you know everybody's like this this is normality 
And so, yeah, it was really drummed into me from a young age that like what I have to say doesn't really matter. What I'm seeing isn't true. Um, And yeah, I think that kind of shaped the way for what unfolded for me in my life very, very early on. Yeah. So you were exposed to a lot, a lot of abuse. Do you, <laughs> let me ask you this. Do you think um, alcohol, alcoholism, I should say, is genetic based? But I've been watching a lot of stuff on that recently and they don't know for sure. But uh, mm-hmm. what's your opinion? Would you say if you, if you were asked that question, which I'm asking you right now? Yeah. I feel it's, it's, a, it's a coping mechanism for deep, deep trauma. Um, and like when I look back at my family generationally, like their background and where they come from, like we were lower to middle class. My mum's side, um, they're from up north in the UK and come from like a mining background. And, you know, like there was a lot of trauma that went on up there and um, emotional abuse, violence in the family home was kind of a normal thing, as I was saying. Not so much with my dad's side, um, which was like down south kind of middle class but yeah I just feel like that came through generationally from the unresolved trauma like repressed trauma and that kind of travels through the family line until someone's ready to heal it which is you know what I'm I'm doing in my work now and what I help people with but yeah I don't know I I, I can't comment on the genetic side of things I truly believe like you know some people can grow up in alcoholic families and just choose not to touch alcohol, you know, um, but I think it's also a way that we choose to learn through life and cope. And I find some of the most inspirational, creative people tend to go down that track as a way of repression because they don't know how to bring through that vital essence, that power that they have, you know, that inspirational, creative flair that they have um, because no one's ever seen or heard them in their experience or really like um held space for them to bring that through recognize because they've been going through their own stuff you know right so yeah that's my view on it okay how did you do in school growing up so I was pretty um clever at school and pretty focused I mean I got bullied quite a lot um but that didn't really throw me off what threw me off was when my parents were kind of like reaching the point of breakup and things got pretty crazy at home and that was around kind of like 15 to 16 years old and by then I was already getting interested in guys and you know like there were parties outside of school with alcohol and stuff like that and I just didn't really know who I was you know every time I tried to be myself or um express my my truth and be myself it it felt like it wasn't acceptable I didn't I didn't really know who I was so I would shift and mold to people please and meet the needs of everybody else and feel like I could fit in so when I got to about 15 16 um you know like exams everything got scrapped I I stopped kind of focusing and it was more about like how can I really be just seen and accepted and change myself to feel you know, part of a tribe kind of. Um, And I think we all go through this experience during our teens in some way, you know, like we kind of want to fit in and we want to find our circle of friends and sometimes we'll change in ways to um, do that. And so, yeah, um, come my early teens, things really started to change and school just wasn't an interest to me anymore. 
Um, and that's when I started to really look to drugs and alcohol. Yeah. What was your social life like growing up? It was ever changing. So as I was saying, like the shifting and molding to fit in just got worse and worse. Like I um, was obviously repressing my true self. And so at times when I would snap or, you know, think certain things would come out and I felt rejection or abandonment, I would shift to another circle of friends. So I had a multitude of different circles that I would kind of move and, and shift around. But no one ever felt like super, super tight, super close. Um, at times, like I would have, you know, like a, a, a close best friend, but it was more of a codependent relationship where they would enable behaviors and I would enable theirs like it was kind of a support thing where there were toxic things playing out but yeah it all served a purpose I mean looking back like you know I wouldn't change any of it for the world like to see where I am now and the way that it's all played out like there's so much coming through in terms of lessons in the ways that we have looked to cope um and kind of attached to different things for a sense of self you know and power I would say um and in the breaking down of that in the change and transformation that has happened constantly there's been new things that have come through new ways that I've been able to tap into like my true self you know and so obviously you were exposed to drugs and alcohol pretty young being that so many people in your family were alcoholics right yeah when was the first time you personally ever had anything to drink or I don't know if you what was the first thing you ever did it's hard to remember because I'm pretty sure as a child when my mom and dad were having parties I would sneakily try stuff and um, so it's really hard to pinpoint like I do have flashbacks of like being at my auntie's with both my mom and my auntie passed out and me trying to smoke you know just a butt from the ashtray just because I was curious I was like what is this all about everybody's like so obsessed with it um what was your weed no no just just a cigarette my mom yeah my mum and dad didn't take drugs not to my knowledge um I I think I was the first family member directly between like our little unit that actually went you know like fully balls deep into everything (laughs) but um yeah like I I do remember like you know touching bits here and there but I think the first major kind of like experience with drink was around 15 um at a party just like in a field after school um and then yeah like that became more frequent until I left school and um went to college and that's when I started to get into drugs because there was more people that were kind of like dealing and yeah there was easy access to it and by then um my parents had separated so I was I was staying with my mum I chose to live with my mum very sneakily in a way, because when I look back, she was in a more vulnerable state and it was easy for me to manipulate the situation in that at 16, I wanted to be able to do what I want. And I knew my dad would have like really disciplined me and been like, no, but because my mum was in the situation she was, I went to move with her. And that was when I could really be out on the streets she didn't even care or know where I was and that's when it really started to amp up and things got crazy tell me a little bit more about your first time 
first time drinking or drugs. Yeah. Again, it's very patchy for me, but I just remember, I mean, everybody was just like drinking whatever they could get their hands on, whatever they were able to get from from the shop. And um, we were just all in a field, um, I guess, like dancing and socializing and kissing and all the things that we weren't allowed to do, just kind of making the most of it. But yeah, that's as much as I can remember, really. there are other times where, you know, I was fairly new to it. And I remember just like really going too far already, you know, like drinking whole bottles of sparkling wine and throwing up for hours and hours. Um, and I, I, I used to mix up like my friends, uh, parents used to have, you know, like the cocktail bar kind of things in the house. So we would just like take little bits of everything and mix up like this horrible concoction of spirits and drink that um yeah so that's kind of where it started (laughs) so it sounds like you have good association with uh your first time talking about dancing the field and stuff like that yeah a lot of people their story is not so pretty a lot of times it ends with them face deep in the toilet bowl you know what I mean Mm. regretting it I, I don't remember having actually it was it was all pleasant because I was really unhappy with who I was how life was and I just remember as soon as like you know alcohol came along and there were all these parties and stuff life got fun so it was an opportunity for me to step away from life like disassociate like break free feel a sense of like community and connection in some way as well because it it brought down the barriers and it helped me to kind of open up in ways that I felt I couldn't without alcohol and I guess that's where it was a slippery slope for me because in kind of feeling that way about it it then became more of a dependency where you know I started to go out and it was like I couldn't be out with everyone unless I had a bottle or a can or something there to help open me up basically. You said earlier you were unhappy do you remember what was making you unhappy when you were young? Yeah I think it was just being in such a crazy volatile environment was very uncomfortable. Um, and I I know now, like I'm incredibly um, intuitive and sensitive. I pick up on everything, like thoughts, feelings, emotions. That's what I do in my work now is I help people. I guide people through big energy blocks and, and do clearings. But at that time during my childhood, obviously I didn't know anything about that. Neither did my parents. And now looking back, like, with the energy in the house it was very kind of like angry emotional there was so much pushed down and so many ways that people were coping with it and I would always you know just honestly pick up on things and try to speak to it and um that would obviously just I'd get projected on that would get rejected um as not true and I found I kind of became the energy of the house as well like I remember I would get so like rageful and angry Um, that I would throw things and scream and that wasn't me but it was the only way to kind of feel seen or heard is or to get attention you know was to act the same way that people in the house were acting Um, and I remember so early on like before my teens you know I, I had journals with talking about suicide and how I wanted to end my life so I feel like you know I've had this deep deep relationship with the darkness and death And I think that kind of 
became a catalyst in the end because there's been so many experiences I've had with that in my life where I've had near-death experiences and nearly took my life that something brought me back in ways that yeah completely transformed how I perceive life and that you know in those dark dark moments when you find the light there's so much truth that can come from that and so much transformation um but yeah like just remembering those dark moments as a child um I feel again it all kind of contributed to where I am now I know some people um you know can really struggle with acceptance in that and it's taken me such a long time um when I first kind of started to transform my ways I remember there was a good two three years of like resentments and blame um and also a lot of grief and like challenges to forgive um but now looking back as I say like um yeah I just see all of it as a part of you know where I am now um but yeah that it it was so dark at times that I remember as a kid like looking out the window when I used to get locked in my room and stuff being like when I can get out of here when I can leave I'm gonna do whatever I fucking want nobody's gonna tell me what to do and it was like that that resentment that anger that fire which is kind of like my power now but that rebellion as well had me like a shot put you know or a what's it catapult like as soon as I could leave I just was acting out in so many ways that I knew wasn't allowed or I knew was controversial or I knew would get me into trouble but I just so deeply wanted to rebel um and that was really the start of like a good 10 years of just crazy wild behavior um so yeah (laughs) you mentioned uh some near-death experiences Mm. what kind of stuff So when I first started to to take um, ecstasy, I didn't really have any kind of limits on how much I would take. Um, Like the first time I started to take ecstasy was like 16 and I triple dropped on my first night. And then that kind of became a habit for me. Um, And I was known for how much I would take. People would be like fucking hardcore, you know, she can take so much. And it was kind of like a pride thing. I was like, yeah. Um, But yeah, that obviously... (laughs) wasn't going to last forever taking drugs like that and there had been a few times where I had drank a lot of alcohol and then in queuing up for a club if they were going to do drug searches I would just pop everything I had in one go Um, and there were two occasions where I ended up collapsing and being taken to hospital um, and being strapped to a chair waking up with a drip and stomach pump and um, yeah so there's been yeah a number of occasions where that's happened I actually I don't actually know how many times there's been so many times I've woken up in hospital um but like two three specific times where you know um there's been drips and yeah they've had to like really try and help me come through whatever drugs I've taken so a lot of overdoses yeah yeah and it's strange because like in speaking about it I didn't I didn't look at them as overdoses but it was kind of like oh yeah I just took too much but I overdosed (laughs) but life was so crazy for me where I would take such ridiculous amounts that I just didn't see it as any kind of like you know crazy thing it was like normality to me and now I've kind of come through the other side I'm like that was huge you know I nearly killed myself and and I didn't see it as a big deal 
Um, and it was almost celebrated. Like the first major time that I did that, um, I actually booked a taxi from my friend's house. Who My friend came to get me and took me to their home and they were trying to keep me there. And I refused. I booked a taxi and went to an after party and I had hospital bands on my arms. I turned up with a bottle of vodka. Everyone was like, way, like cheering me on. And I was back in the kitchen doing ketamine after just having like drip and everything um, and still with my hospital bands on. And it was kind of like I'm the champion of just continuing kicking on you know um so I had no respect or regard for my life really like I just didn't care it was like if I go I go um but I'm here for the party basically (laughs) and just kept on yeah so once you graduated high school going back a little bit what did Mm. you do with your life I mean as far as getting a job or anything like that or I'm you know or at past college, whatever that was. Yeah, so I I had a attempt at college. So when I moved with my mum, I, I left school and went into a college. And I think I lasted about three months um, and then chose to drop out. Um, and by then I was like in kind of like a group, a gang in the area that I was living in. And, you know, um, just hanging out on the street, drinking most Friday, Saturday nights. Um, started to kind of like dabble in some weed and then I met a friend that um, dealt crack and cocaine um, and started to try that Um, so yeah then I decided to get a job and um, I explored a few things like I was cleaning the local leisure center and gym and then I managed to get a telesales job so I started to work in sales at 16 and it was great because it was very social. Um, it was easy for me to do. I was very good at sales and it was good money. But also in that environment, again, you know, like they're giving free bottles of wine to people who've got the most sales. There's people coming in doing cocaine in the toilet. So I kind of entered an environment which then kind of, yeah, just enabled that behavior even further. And at 16, 17, was then obviously going out on team nights out and things like that. And yeah, things just continued to snowball. (laughs) Yeah. So at what point did you ever say that you might be using too much? (laughs) Mm. Like how long was your drinking drug career? Career, I love it. Um, It was... I'd say from 16 to around 27 was pretty okay. solid. And um, it was around 25 that, um, I mean, I'd always had like a keen interest in exercise, like fitness. And like from very early on would go to the gym and do training classes and got really into that. So there was something in me that wanted to have healthy habits and I'd always had kind of like a very deep introspective side of me. So I read like, you know, some kind of spiritual books and stuff. I'd always had kind of an interest in the mystic stuff, but it also got kind of laughed upon, frowned upon by friends and social groups. So it's kind of something that I kept quiet. And then when I reached around 25, um, something took over where I was really getting into fitness. I think it was because I, I was living in Australia at the time. And I was working really hard to get my Australian citizenship. So it meant I had to really commit to focusing on work, earning lots of money 
um, getting recognition for the, the uh, citizenship process, the residency process, and going to the gym. So there was some consistency and routine happening in my life that I had to do in order to get what I wanted, my citizenship. And that in itself started to become a bit of a catalyst, I think, where when I did drink, I would feel really shit and I couldn't train and I wasn't very focused at work. And so I started to see, okay, you need to kind of get on track and have a bit more discipline. And in that, my addiction started to go to fitness. So there was kind of a transition come 25, 26, where things started to change and fitness became my addiction. Um, But yeah, like it, it took a while. I mean, like even when that kind of changed, it took like three, four years for me to finally kind of give up everything. So, yeah. Um, do you think that's healthy that you replace your addiction with fitness or do you still consider an addiction an addiction? I think it's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah it, again, it was a catalyst. So it was, you know, it was a healthy coping mechanism in some ways. However, I did get quite obsessive and and decided to do a competition. And, you know, it wasn't just training. It was like training to compete. Yeah. Uh, but saying that, like I chose to do that. And I know connecting with kind of like my higher self and, and why I chose to do that was because I wanted to give up drinking. And I knew if I set myself a challenge, then for like eight, nine months, I had to focus on that challenge instead of, you know, going back to my old habits and ways. Um, but then saying that, like after the comp, um, I fell off the wagon again. And I know this happens with so many of us addicts, you know, that have alcohol problems, drug addiction. I don't feel like there is this one magical thing that just stops everything. At some point, I feel like there's the temptation to fall off the wagon. And for me now, I've learned that a lot of that had to do with just emotional stuff that's repressed. You know, it was everything that was in the locker. So even though I was training and being healthy and changing my ways, I wasn't dealing with all of the dark, shadowy, repressed stuff, the shame and everything that was going on inside. I was just looking for new ways to kind of cover it up, basically. So have you ever sought any type of help to help you with these battles? Yeah, so it's been a very, very interesting and unique journey, I feel. Um, So what happened is in 2017 or 16, sorry, 2016, um, I had like a really big, big bender. So it was like a three day bender where I was literally crawling up the stairs trying to get my ketamine encrusted key in the door and couldn't focus and got into the bathroom and was projectile vomiting, fetal position on the floor, hugging the toilet and passing consciousness. And I felt like death. And um, I finally managed to get myself up and pull myself up onto the sink and looked into the mirror. And I looked at myself and I looked gray, like a zombie, like, yeah, like I was dead. And it was in that moment that I was really looking at myself in the mirror that I could hear this little voice that was just saying, like, what what the fuck are you doing to yourself? Why do you keep doing this? Like, if you don't quit, it's ride or die, bitch. You're going to be a goner because you keep, keep doing this. And I went to bed that night 
and woke up in the morning and just life felt different. Like the birds were singing louder. The sun was shining brighter. I just felt this gratitude for life that I hadn't felt before because I was awake. I was alive and I'd had this realization that you can't keep doing this. This has got to stop. So my first kind of major step towards change was first, obviously, feeling like you're going to die again. And and then hearing that kind of like inner witness, almost like the soul, you know, saying, stop doing this, you know, you've got to stop. Um, And then in that, it kind of initiated change whereby I was going on hikes on my own, taking time for myself, like really just. I I couldn't not be around people, you know, I was always the last at the after party and didn't want to go home and be on my own. And finally, I decided to just be with myself, like listen to my thoughts, listen to my feelings, like really be in my experience. And in the hikes and things like that, something like a spiritual connection started to come through. And I was like, feeling like something needs to come in and help support me in this change. And it was about sort of three weeks after this experience that I had a friend reach out and say, I've just been to an ayahuasca ceremony and it's been life changing. And I'd heard about this stuff and was very judgmental. Like I remember watching my friend um, on YouTube, like looking it up and I was like, why on earth would you go to the jungle and throw up and do all that crazy psychedelic shit? But in this moment of him sharing this with me, there was this deep, deep resonance I had no idea what was in I was in for, but it just of all the things I'd been looking at, this kind of made sense to me. And so I agreed and and got myself on a wait list. And apparently this wait list was huge. But within four weeks, I'd been invited to a ceremony. And yeah, that was the biggest ever catalyst of change in my whole life. After the two day retreat that I went to, I I can't even can't even articulate really what I went through but my entire reality changed and from that weekend onwards I was catapulted into like a crazy wild life-changing adventure that I'm still on now Um, but it set me on the path of doing medicine work for quite some time and within three months of that retreat um I was looking at my corporate job, my friendship circles and everything looked, it felt wrong. It was like I could see the authentic truth of what I was really surrounding myself with and none of it felt aligned with the truth of who I am. And I was is a hallucinogen, right? Yeah, yeah. How long do you trip for? Um, it was, so there's two ceremonies and it goes on for, I think like eight to 10 hours each night and um it's a long trip yeah yeah and I'd never experienced like psychedelics before I'd only ever taken kind of um you know like amphetamines and stuff so yeah I didn't know what I was in for and I was super frightened I was super scared I was also super judgmental seeing all these spiritual people in their white outfits and like smudge sticks and stuff and I was like what am I doing here I wanted to run away um but yeah, and, and the first night after the first night was so huge, I cried for three hours. Um, like I had so much emotional, like emotions release and revelations, memories that I couldn't remember came through from when I was like five years old that helped me to understand certain things about myself, the way that I was acting, the things that I was doing. 
and helped me to have a deeper sense of compassion for my family and for myself. And after that first night, I was like wrung out. It was like I had been like a heavy, wet, sopping towel full of dirty mud and crap. And it was like it wrung me out of all the stuff. And I was saying to the facilitators there, I'm good. I don't know. Like that was like I went on a near-death experience, saw my whole life flash before me. And I'm, I'm complete. What more could I see? And they were like, that was just like a slight opening of the can of worms like you've got to go for the second one because your barriers are broken a little bit now like you know your defenses and yeah mustered up the strength to do a second night and that was even bigger and like I say that I mean it it blew my mind how it's just like my whole life was presented before me with all the deeper understandings of why what happened needed to happen and also just allowing myself to feel emotions that I wasn't allowing myself to feel and in that process it kind of softened me and opened me up um, to feeling myself more deeply and in that it was like I didn't want to keep numbing myself out anymore I couldn't and so every experience that I walked back into that in my life like my reality that I created it didn't feel aligned anymore it was like I, I can't be numb to this. I'm in this office. Everything looks black and white and stale. And people are like on the fake with their fake phone voices and pretending to like each other and slagging each other off. I'm, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't be fake. And so that again, after about three months, it took me a while and it was really, really hard to walk away. But I, I got the strength to leave and something in me just wanted to completely strip back so I you know at that point was like fake hair extensions fake eyelashes fake nails I was wearing high heels all the time fake tan you know like I was in a recruitment job earning a lot of money and I started to look for like a commune like an eco community I got rid of like all of my clothes bar one suitcase I got rid of my apartment and I just hit the roads of Australia with nowhere in particular to go but it was like I just washed myself clean of everything and just wanted to strip bare like go back to simplicity so I could build my life back up and it was crazy I don't think that well I didn't know really what I was letting myself in for because obviously there's so much that we're attached to that defines our sense of self and in that process like so much had to die and leave and there was a lot of grieving and confusion and definitely some running away as well you know there could have been things that maybe I would have been able to really face and go through but also feel that it was a real divine experience that again has brought me to where I am now but yeah the ayahuasca was the catalyst that's the main thing that really helped me um and then there were other things along the way like I've done two vipassana meditation retreats I don't know if you've heard of Vipassana no I've never heard of that okay so it's actually um donation only so they're all around the world if anyone's interested in doing one um and there there's meditation temples what you go to and they teach a certain type of meditation every day which helps you to drop into the body and feel your feelings and it's pure silence so the day that you get there you hand over your phone and you go into sacred silence and you cannot speak, talk or give eye contact to anyone for those 10 days. So it's a full introspective experience. 
and um yeah their donation run so anyone struggling with money or whatever they invite everybody and anyone that wants to try that experience to go do it um and yeah I think I would have really struggled with that had I not kind of gone on that big introspective journey with ayahuasca but um that was really transformative as well I think just being quiet you know from all the noise and craziness and talking and gossiping to just be silent um I had like a huge experience both times that I went to do it which was almost like taking psychedelics without any psychedelics um and it taught me the way that when we're really quiet and we can really drop into our feelings it's kind of we open up like a I don't know what what you call it like reservoir of what's sitting there And, you know, in day to day life, there's so many distractions and things that we reach for and we're constantly stimulated and doing, doing, doing. It's very hard for us to tap into that. Um, And in this retreat, it was like you have no choice. You are sitting down, you are committing, you are dedicating your time and energy to really just feeling what's in the body and connecting with your breath. And again, that just really showed me how as humans we're so disconnected from our truth through all the distraction and noise and craziness so yeah there's been lots of things I could talk for hours so I don't know how long you've got (laughs) no no keep going talk as long as you want but um I think it's been really cool story so far I mean the ayahuasca thing I've actually thought about that not not necessarily that specifically but I've said would I do a hallucinogenic and if I did would that make me not sober I I didn't I haven't come up with an answer to that for me Mm -hmm. I don't know because they're not to get high like when I anytime I've taken hallucinogenic well I mean mushrooms made me laugh a little bit but it was more of like a spiritual experience than anything yeah yeah I really feel like it depends on what intention you have behind it you know um like I have been in ceremony I think 40 times now and people may look at that like that's just another addiction um but every time that I've been in ceremony there's been an invitation that's come in and I've had to really feel into is it right do I need it um what more do I need to dive into and it's been two years since I've worked with any medicine now um and I know you know if if it feels right I would go for it but I feel very passionately around this in that I know, you know, Al-Anon and stuff, they feel quite strongly around psychedelics and that it's breaking sobriety to go near them. However, it it broke my addiction. It it pulled me away. And so I think everybody's experience is unique. Um, but yeah, I guess it it's looking at whether there's a dependency there or not. And my view is sometimes like we can depend on other things, you know, we can depend on religion and we can depend. There's so many ways we can look for something to help us feel a sense of identity outside of ourselves. And what I found with my work with medicines as it brought me home to me. So now I feel so much more anchored into my body and feel a deeper sense of um, self, like, you know, I'm tapped into that essence that wants to come through and nobody can dictate or tell me, um, you know, how that should be. It's like I am more confident now in that sense of self. And in that, it's like it's become my work. You know, it's like the work chose me. I didn't choose it. It's like I cannot help but now guide other people back to themselves. And I, I really attribute that to my medicine work. 
I mean, obviously, there's a lot that I've done um, other than that. But it really was a catalyst for me. Like ayahuasca completely changed my life. And I have such deep reverence for that medicine. And in the knowing that, you know, the plant just gives you like a key and access to spirit. So it really is, I feel dependent on whether or not that tool is the right tool for the the person. Because we're all different, right? We're all going to respond and open in our own unique ways. And I feel my soul kind of came here and guided me to that particular tool. That was the key to help me awaken to this new sense of self. And again, there can be so many other things that bring about that defining moment for other people, you know? I don't know if you know this, Bill W., one of the founders of AA, he did experiments with LSD. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember what the documentary was. I think it was with Michael Pollan. There's like a series on Netflix, but they go into this quite a bit and just how, how much, you know, psychedelics has transformed, you know, mental health issues and, and things like that, but the way that it's been shut out and, and stopped. Um, and I get that there needs to be some kind of control around it. I mean, I've seen some horror stories, heard some horror stories around, you know, ceremonies and the kind of things that happen. But I think with all these things, you know, I've had I've got horror stories with counsellors that I was directed to from the government. I've got horror stories from doctors that told me to take beta blockers at 13 years old to slow my heart down. So, you know, it's like people send you to go do these different things. And it's really having like the discernment and intuition and the healthy guidance and support to, you know, yeah connect you with the right places and I'm a real big believer that when you kind of like connect in with yourself you get that kind of moment which I did with um that inner witness that soul it's it it's in the trusting that kind of things do come in and it's having that discernment as to whether or not there's a resonance like it feels right to go into it and I know so many people when it comes to medicine just have this strong inner knowing where it's like yeah it's my time you know so Mm. all right getting towards the end here and i want to ask you something that i ask everybody do you have any advice for people watching and listening any advice yeah um i guess what i'm really focused on right now is really encouraging people to anchor into their sense of self this is something i have to try and practice daily is when we wake up we kind of default into our usual habits routines and and get swept away in the noise of life and I'm really learning that it's important for us to have some kind of devotional practice to prioritize ourselves and really listen to the unique unique essence of who we are and what I feel is there's so much that's zapping us of our life force right now and we have to find a way to really dedicate and focus our time to bring about more of that life force rather than zap it, you know, and kind of feel into the areas of life that are doing that, you know, the ways that we're looking for that quick buzz, that overstimulation, that quick fix, rather than the long-term more sustainable options, whereby it may take some real commitment, time and dedication to facing the tough stuff and actually doing things that you really, really love. So, yeah, I use I use the word anchor in and not everybody would really understand that. But what I mean by that is like, you know, like an anchor, 
is really just like coming back to your heart, your soul, and giving yourself enough time to really listen to your own needs, like your true needs before me trying to meet everybody else's. Um, And that's been a big theme of my life is just, you know, from very early on, trying to meet the needs of everyone else. I think we all struggle with this. We're injected with values and, you know, expectations of the people's school teachers, caretakers around us. And then we don't really know who we are. And the only way we can really discover that is, again, just every day having some kind of devotional practice to start bringing back that sense of self, you know, that true self. Big advice, I guess. <laughs> no, it's good stuff. So yeah. you have anything else you want to throw in? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we went into quite a bit there. Yeah, yeah it was a good interview. I enjoyed it. You enjoy it? You have a good time today? Yeah, thank you for getting me on here and encouraging that kind of conversation because it's been a while and it's tough stuff to talk about this. But I guess that's one thing I will add is like, you know, I've been helping people to kind of bring through their story and start talking about this stuff more openly on socials. That's been a huge part of my work. And it's what transformed things for me, you know, is just by writing posts around what I've been experiencing, what I've learned. And in doing that, you feel seen, heard, supported by others. And I guess this is what you're doing, Jim, is like creating a community where people get to hear other people's experiences and it helps you to feel like you're not alone, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because, I mean, that's the one thing that a lot of us addicts feel is very alone. Yeah. Sometimes we can feel like it's only happening to us sometimes. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I, sometimes I feel like it doesn't go away. You know, I still have moments like that, but it's when we can come back in community and reach out to one another or just listen to someone share their story. There's gentle reminders there that it's okay. You know, there's always light at the end of the tunnel and you're not alone. You're not. Exactly. And I hope this podcast does that. I hope it reaches people. Me too. Yeah. Thank you. All right. No, thank you again. So sit tight for me. And for everybody watching, listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on TikTok, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr. I also suggest checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. Got plenty of free resources and literature there. So I hope you enjoyed today. And until next time.